This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man Alive by G. K. Chesterton. Section 17. Part 2. The Explanations of Innocent Smith. Chapter 2. The Two Curates, or The Burglary Charge. Part 1. Arthur Inglewood handed the document he had just read to the leaders of the prosecution, who examined it with their heads together. Both the Jew and the American were of sensitive and excitable stocks, and they revealed, by the jumpings and bumpings of the black head and the yellow, that nothing could be done in the way of denial of the document. The letter from the warden was as authentic as the letter from the sub-warden, however regrettably different in dignity and social tone. Very few words, said Inglewood, are required to conclude our case in this matter. Surely it is now plain that our client carried his pistol about with the eccentric but innocent purpose of giving a wholesome scare to those whom he regarded as blasphemers. In each case the scare was so wholesome that the victim himself has dated from it as from a new birth. Smith, so far from being a madman, is rather a mad doctor. He walks the world curing frenzies and not disturbing them. That is the answer to the two unanswerable questions which I put to the prosecutors. That is why they dared not produce a line by any one who has actually confronted the pistol. All who had actually confronted the pistol confessed that they had profited by it. That was why Smith, though a good shot, never hit anybody. He never hit anybody because he was a good shot. His mind was as clear of murder as his hands are of blood. This, I say, is the only possible explanation of these facts, and of all the other facts. No one can possibly explain the warden's conduct except by believing the warden's story. Even Dr. Pym, who is a very factory of ingenious theories, could find no other theory to cover the case. There are promising perspectives in hypnotism and dual personality, said Dr. Cyrus Pym dreamily. The science of criminology is in its infancy, and— Infancy, cried Moon, jerking his red pencil in the air with a gesture of enlightenment. Why, that explains it. I repeat, proceeded Inglewood, that neither Dr. Pym nor anyone else can account on any other theory but ours for the warden's signature, for the shots missed, and the witnesses missing. The little Yankee had slipped to his feet with some return of a cock-fighting coolness. The defense, he said, omits a coldly colossal fact. They say we produce none of the actual victims. While well, here's one victim, England's celebrated and stricken Warner. I reckon he's pretty well produced, and they suggest that all the outrages were followed by reconciliation. Well, there's no flies on England's Warner, and he isn't reconciliated much. My learned friend, said Moon, getting elaborately to his feet, must remember that the science of shooting Dr. Warner is in its infancy. Dr. Warner would strike the idlest eye as one specially difficult to startle into any recognition of the glory of God. We admit that our client, in this one instance, failed, and that the operation was not successful. But I am empowered to offer on behalf of my client a proposal for operating on Dr. Warner again, at his earliest convenience, and without further fees. Hang it all, Michael, cried Gould, quite serious for the first time in his life. You might give us a bit of bally sense for a change. 
"'What was Dr. Warner talking about just before the first shot?' asked Moon sharply. "'The creature,' said Dr. Warner superciliously, "'asked me with characteristic rationality whether it was my birthday.' "'And you answered with characteristic swank,' cried Moon, "'shooting out a long, lean finger, as rigid and arresting as the pistol of Smith, "'that you didn't keep your birthday.' "'Something like that,' assented the doctor. "'Then,' continued Moon, "'he asked you why not, "'and you said it was because you didn't see that birth "'was anything to rejoice over. Agreed? "'Now is there anyone who doubts that our tale is true?' There was a cold crash of stillness in the room, and Moon said, Pax populae vox Dei. It is the silence of the people that is the voice of God. Or, in Dr. Pym's more civilized language, it is up to him to open the next charge. On this we claim an acquittal. It was about an hour later. Dr. Cyrus Pym had remained for an unprecedented time with his eyes closed and his thumb and finger in the air. It almost seemed as if he had been struck so, as the nurses say, and in the deathly silence Michael Moon felt forced to relieve the strain with some remark. For the last half-hour or so, the eminent criminologist had been explaining that science took the same view of offences against property as it did of offences against life. Most murder, he had said, is a variation of homicidal mania, and in the same way most theft is a version of kleptomania. I cannot entertain any doubt that my learned friends opposite adequately conceive how this must involve a scheme of punishment more tolerant and humane than the cruel methods of ancient codes. They will doubtless exhibit consciousness of a chasm so imminently yawning, so thought-arresting, so... It was here that he paused, and indulged in the delicate gesture to which allusion has been made, and Michael could bear it no longer. Yes, yes, he said impatiently, we admit the chasm. The old cruel codes accuse a man of theft and send him to prison for ten years. The tolerant and humane ticket accuses him of nothing and sends him to prison for ever. We pass the chasm. It was characteristic of the eminent Dr. Pym, in one of his trances of verbal fastidiousness, that he went on unconscious not only of his opponent's interruption, but even of his own pause. So stock-improving, continued Dr. Cyrus Pym, so fraught with real high hopes of the future, science therefore regards thieves in the abstract, just as it regards murderers. It regards them not as sinners to be punished for an arbitrary period, but as patients to be detained and cared for. His first two digits now closed again, as he hesitated. In short, for the required period. But there is something special in the case we investigate here. Kleptomania commonly conjoins itself. I beg pardon, said Michael. I did not ask just now, because, to tell the truth, I really thought Dr. Pym, though seemingly vertical, was enjoying well-earned slumber with a pinch in his fingers of scentless and delicate dust. But now that things are moving a little more, there is something I should really like to know. I have hung on Dr. Pym's lips, of course, with an interest that it were weak to call rapture, but I have so far been unable to form any conjecture about what the accused in the present instance is supposed to have been gone and done. If Mr. Moon will have patience, said Dr. Pym with dignity, he will find that this was the very point to which my exposition was directed. Kleptomania, I say, exhibits itself as a kind of physical attraction to certain defined materials, and it has been held by no less a man than Harris 
that this is the ultimate explanation of the strict specialism and very narrow professional outlook of most criminals. One will have the most elegant and celebrated diamond sleeve links placed about in the most conspicuous locations. Another will impede his flight with no less than forty-seven buttoned boots, while elastic side boots leave him cold and even sarcastic. The specialism of the criminal, I repeat, is a mark rather of insanity than of any brightness or business habits. But there is one kind of depredator to whom this principle is at first sight hard to apply. I allude to our fellow-citizen, the housebreaker. It has been maintained by some of our boldest young truth-seekers that the eye of a burglar beyond the back garden wall could hardly be caught and hypnotized by a fork that is insulated in a locked box under the butler's bed. They have thrown down the gauntlet to American science on this point. They declare that diamond links are not left about in conspicuous locations in the haunts of the lower classes, as they were in the great test experiment of Calypso College. We hope this experiment here will be an answer to that young ringing challenge, and will bring the burglar once more into line and union with his fellow criminals. Moon, whose face had gone through every phase of black bewilderment for five minutes past, suddenly lifted his hand and struck the table in explosive enlightenment. Oh! I see, he cried. You mean that Smith is a burglar? I thought I made it quite adequately lucid, said Mr. Pym, folding up his eyelids. It was typical of this topsy-turvy private trial, that all the eloquent extras, all the rhetoric or digression on either side, was exasperating and unintelligible to the other. Moon could not make head or tail of the solemnity of a new civilization. Pym could not make head or tail of the gaiety of an old one. All the cases in which Smith has figured as an expropriator, continued the American doctor, are cases of burglary. Pursuing the same course as in the previous case, we select the indubitable instance from the rest, and we take the most correct cast-iron evidence. I will now call on my colleague Mr. Gould to read a letter we have received from the earnest, unspotted canon of Durham, Canon Hawkins. Mr. Moses Gould leapt up with his usual alacrity to read the letter from the earnest and unspotted Hawkins. Moses Gould could imitate a farmyard well, Sir Henry Irving not so well, Marie Lloyd to a point of excellence, and the new motor horns in a matter that put him upon the platform of great artists. But his imitation of Canon Durham was not convincing. Indeed, the sense of the letter was so much obscured by the extraordinary leaps and gasps of his pronunciation that it is perhaps better to print it here, as Moon read it, when a little later it was handed across the table. Dear sir, I can scarcely feel surprised that the incident you mention, private as it was, should have filtered through our omnivorous journals to the mere populace, for the position I have since attained makes me, I conceive, a public character, and this was certainly the most extraordinary incident in a not uneventful, and perhaps not an unimportant career. I am by no means without experience in scenes of civil tumult. I have faced many a political crisis in the old Primrose League days at Hearn Bay, and before I broke with the wilder set have spent many a night at the Christian Social Union. But this other experience was quite inconceivable. I can only describe it as the letting loose of a place which it is not for me as a clergyman to mention. It occurred in the days when I was for a short period a curate at Hoxton, and the other curate, then my colleague, induced me to attend a meeting which he described, I must say profanely described, as calculated to promote the kingdom of God. 
I found, on the contrary, that it consisted entirely of men in corduroys and greasy clothes, whose manners were coarse and their opinions extreme. Of my colleague in question I wish to speak with the fullest respect and friendliness, and I will therefore say little. No one can be more convinced than I of the evil of politics in the pulpit, and I never offer my congregation any advice about voting, except in cases in which I feel strongly they are likely to make an erroneous selection. But while I do not mean to touch at all upon political or social problems, I must say that for a clergyman to countenance, even in jest, such discredited nostrums of dissipated demagogues as socialism or radicalism partakes of the character of the betrayal of a sacred trust. Far be it for me to say a word against the Reverend Raymond Percy, the colleague in question. He was brilliant, I suppose, and to some apparently fascinating. But a clergyman who talks like a socialist, wears his hair like a pianist, and behaves like an intoxicated person, will never rise in his profession, or even obtain the admiration of the good and wise. Nor is it for me to utter my personal judgments of the appearance of the people in the hall. Yet a glance around the room, revealing ranks of debased and envious faces. End of section 17